Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And a lot of people were and are expecting a bland federal election campaign with pre-programmed leaders from major parties in a presidential-style campaign approach. Um, But while this has played out uh, for many issues, there have been some curveballs that have made the campaign a little more unpredictable, and this includes that inflation figure over 5% and the possibility of an interest rate rise for the first time in over a decade, both which are challenging the government's economic credentials. But there's also been the curveball of a focus on the Solomon Islands, and China and national security was also always going to feature in the campaign. However, I think it's fair to say it was never supposed to be like this about the decision by the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands to sign on a security agreement with China. And yet here we are. And here we are with Jeff Sparrow. And Jeff, it's great to have you there. And I guess I'm, in- I'm interested in your take on how the Solomon Islands decision to sign this security agreement has played out in the campaign so far. Yeah, oh, it's great to be talking to you guys, as always. To be honest, I found it deeply depressing the way that both major political parties and also almost the entirety of the media has just, almost without thinking, lapsed into these kind of neo-colonial assumptions that Australia has the right to determine what the Solomon Islands should do, even just as something as simple as the way that the issue is framed as relevant to us because the Solomon Islands is our backyard. Now, you know, imagine the outrage amongst the chattering class in Australia if China started talking about Australia as China's backyard. And yet it's just taken for granted that, you know, that what happens in the Solomon Islands is something that we should have a say in it. I mean, people... The, 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 the one that really did my head in was very early on um, in the emergence of this crisis, a guy called David Llewellyn Smith, um, who's the publisher of a, an outfit called Macro Business. But he's, he was also um, he, one of the, the co-authors of the first Garno report. So he's not nobody. And he's um, former editor of The Diplomat. He's quoted all over the place. Published a piece where he just said... Um, Slightly that uh, Australia should invade the Solomons because of this deal. And this was, you know, he um, you know, he openly said that we should either subvert the government or we should uh, bomb Honorari because this was an existential threat to Australia. And this was reported in, you know, um, the mainstream press as, like, as, a, as a fringe view, but not a completely crazy view. And, of course, that position is exactly, exactly word for word the position that Putin, the argument that Putin put in respect of the Ukraine, that uh, a military presence in the Ukraine was an existential threat to Russian sovereignty, and therefore it was legitimate for Russia to... And if it was illegitimate then, it's presumably illegitimate when it comes to Australia. And yet it's taken almost for granted that this is something that we have a right to, to, to intervene in. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the the dominant narrative, the sort of critical narrative of the Australian government here seems to be that, you know, that they've dropped the ball in effectively managing the relationship with the Solomon Islands because, you know, now they've signed this security deal with China. But it almost is sort of implied that dropping the ball means that you can't directly influence and and, um, and sort of force a, a sovereign country to, to do things that you would prefer that they did. And, and I wonder how you, you see this, um, this kind of issue in the context of broader uh, issues around climate change. We know the Pacific has been crying out for a long time for, you know, real action on climate change. And Australia points to things like the Pacific Step Up and says, oh, you know, we are engaging with our Pacific neighbours. But do you see climate change as being a, a really key issue here in the, the fraying of relations between Australia and Solomon Islands? Yeah, well, it's less a question whether I see it. It's more a question of the people in the, in the region. So, mm-hmm. um, a few days ago, we had the Pacific Elders Voice Group, which is a bunch of former leaders coming out and say, look, people in the region are much less concerned about the great power rival between the United States and China, which is, of course, the context of this as a political crisis, than they are about um, climate change. They said explicitly the primary security threat to the Pacific is climate change. And yet, in terms of how the Pacific Island registers... In, um, in the Australian media, yes, there's a discussion of climate change, but only insofar as being seen to do more about climate change would help us or help the Australian government to exert more <laughs> control over the, the, um, the regime in, in, in the Solomon Islands. And it's completely us about, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you live in one of these countries where... As, you know, um, Dutton and and, um, and Morrison and Tony Abbott infamously joked about the water is lapping at your door, to to be seen as simply a pawn in a strategic game is, well, it's deeply insulting, obviously, but it's also, you know, it's also failing to to, to face up to an absolute existential threat. Yeah, I've never heard um, the the term Pacific family mentioned so many times in my life as in the last couple of weeks. And this is not just by coalition MPs, but ALP. And I'm not saying that, you know, I mean, it has a a wonderful sound to it. And I love that idea that, uh, you know, Australia, um, neighbouring countries can, you know, have that connection with people and and family groups. And we certainly have that with, um, you know, probably, you know, a vast majority of Pacific Island nations and families in Australia and New Zealand. And um, but what do you think the use of that kind of um, term, that kind of rhetoric around family? Why are people drawing on that right now? Do you think, Jeff? Deeply patronising me. It's explicitly paternalistic in the you know in the literal sense of that of that term. You know, Australia wants to see itself as the head of this family, and you know, if you think about the logic of that metaphor, it means that it, it sees the other nations as children who can be you know bribed and cajoled into you know uh, Australia's security interests. I mean, it's extraordinarily how blatant it is. I mean, the age of the Herald a week or so back had a piece that quoted Rory Medcalf from the ANU National Security College. And he said, OK, but this is a quote from him. The fact that China was first to announce the agreement confirms this is indeed a historic day in the neo-colonisation of the Pacific. So the accusation is China is involved in the neo-colonisation of the Pacific. And then he went on to say, the principal failure here is one of high-level statecraft. 
it begs the question, if we can't shape an outcome in a nearby small country where we've provided stability for decades, where can we? So it's neo-colonisation if China builds the base, but it's taken for granted that we should be able to shape the political outcome in a small country. And the context of this, of course, is how many overseas bases does China have in the world? It has one, which is based on the Horn of Africa. How many does the United States have? It has 750. In the Pacific, there are masses of American troops in Japan and in South Korea, which are you know, which, if we're going to use the rhetoric of backyards, is clearly in China's backyard. Australia is building a, a naval base on Manus Island. Now, this is just taken for granted that it's entirely legitimate for Australia to do this. But when, it, when China does it, then this is an existential threat. And, of course, there is such a thing as Chinese imperialism. There is such a thing as China exerting a neo-colonial presence. <laughs> The alternative to that is not Australian neocolonisation. The alternative to that is no neocolonisation and these countries being able to look after their own interests and the interests of the people. But I don't know, it just does my head in the, in the Australian election. It's just taken for granted that these countries only exist insofar as they are doing things that are um, important to Australian national interests. Yeah. And, and, you know... Sorry, just, just it totally fails to take account of the, the long history of, of colonialism. You know, Australia and, and Britain in the Pacific itself. I mean, the Solomon Islands was a British colony until the, the late 70s. And, of course, Australia has a long history with PNG and, and other countries exploiting them, um, you know, as part of the sort of nation-building endeavour. But that history so rarely seems to get discussed in, in the debates across the media and, and the political scene. Exactly, although it does, of course, get discussed in the Pacific. I mean, mm. in the Solomons, uh, Prime Minister Sotovari noticed that the Solomons hadn't even been informed when Australia signed the, um, the Orcas Treaty. So here's this massive uh, change in security um, arrangements in the region. And so for all of this talk that we're all this big family, he says that they read about it in the press. And, you know, it's just this colonialist assumption that, 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 that nations in the Asia-Pacific can just be treated, as we were saying before, almost like children. Jeff Sparrow's with us talking Solomon Islands and the election. And I wonder then, Jeff, how much influence do you think this discussion will have in the Australian election because that comment that you just mentioned was widely reported and Scott Morrison, uh, the Prime Minister, responded to it in a, in a media statement and in press conference. And so the, the Solomon Islands continues to feature in the Australian uh, federal election campaign. Yes, yes, it does. Although, as I said before, it's interesting the way that it does feature that both parties are arguing about this issue, but both parties are operating on the same assumption that really this is this is simply a strategic issue that Australia has a perfect right to do whatever it wants in areas that it calls its backyard, and the Solomon's feature, feature the people of the Solomon's feature. A problem to be managed, rather than you know a community that has their own interests, such as as as, as climate change. And, and I mean, from my perspective, as I said, the whole thing is completely 
um, us about. Um, climate change is being taken as a lever for strategic uh, conflicts with China mm. rather than the other way around. You know, that the climate change is an existential threat, not just in the Solomons, but to all of us, and would be the lens through which other decisions are made. But instead, you know, uh, the concern is that we need to make the right noises about climate change so that we can continue to influence these, these, these countries with those noises being taken simply as a rhetorical manoeuvre to ensure that the Chinese aren't able to establish bases or whatever. It's deeply, deeply cynical. Um, and to be honest, it's deeply depressing. Yeah, and it was notable too that um, Prime Minister Manasseh Sugavare criticised Australia's decision to sign the AUKUS agreement without informing Pacific countries. And, you know, Australia had levelled this accusation that, um, you know, uh, that Solomon Islands hadn't informed us about the, the looming security pact with China, but but I wonder what you make of that and, and whether we're likely to see broader sort of diplomatic fallout in the Pacific Islands as a result of the AUKUS agreement, given that, you know, sometime well down the track, we're, we're likely to have nuclear-powered submarines um, in the region. Yeah, I mean, look, we've talked about this before, that the, the rivalry between China and the US and by association Australia is, I think, one of the biggest stories in the world and is only intensifying. I mean, we're not seeing any steps back on either side. And as we enter in what seems to enter into what seems to be an increasingly unstable uh, economic situation, um, I think we should expect that these kind of rivalries um, will intensify, and um, it will be fought out within the within the within the Pacific. Um, Area and you know, I mean, look, we had Anzac just the Anzac Day just passed. You know, Peter Dutton um, chose Anzac Day to, to tell us that um, we need to prepare for war. That was his Anzac Day message. You know, there was a time when they used to at least pretend that you know Anzac Day was about you know ensuring that future wars wouldn't happen. But he he used it used it to to, to say that we should prepare for war. And there's no mystery about when he talks about preparing for war, who he thinks the adversary is going to be. Well, on that um, very sober note, uh, Jeff, we'll take our leave of you. And I'm not sure if we'll speak um, to you again before the election, but let's see what plays out. Um, perhaps we can squeeze another conversation with you in before May 21. Uh, but, you know, at least some interesting um, fodder for discussion around this particular election campaign, and we didn't get to it, but, um, you know, the visa and worker arrangements with the Solomons and with the Pacific Islands in general, you know, did come off the back of this as well. So, yeah, some yeah, other things. Yeah, interesting times for, for good and for real. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, catch you soon. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. How inclusive is Australia? That's a question addressed by the Social Inclusion Index, which measures a range of factors in relation to people's sense of belonging and ability to fully participate in Australian life. Their latest report has found, among other things, that we're less inclined to identify with our country and that particular groups, namely Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the LGBTQIA plus community, continue to face discrimination. Andrea Pierman is CEO of Inclusive Australia, and to talk all about the report, she joins us here in studio. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And so let's go back to basics. What do we learn about a society by measuring its inclusion index? 
Well, uh, socially inclusive societies are ones where, you know, everybody has a voice, um, where everyone is has a right to participate through access to things like education, employment, um, playing sport. Uh, there's a sense of, um, I guess, connection with family, friends and community, and there's a resilience in society. So it's really important that we, you know, encourage, you know, an inclusive society. And I, um, I love it that this is something that someone is tracking. How is it that you came to be um, the, the group tracking this for Australia? Uh, some time ago, we were looking at what we could do around social inclusion, and there's lots and lots of work going on at a programmatic level, but there wasn't a lot that actually looked at, I guess, what you call culture. You know, so what was the experience and, and attitudes towards people in the community? And so the first thing we did was go out and say, well, you know, is there a role for a project such as Inclusive Australia that does look at culture, that really looks at individuals' attitudes and behaviours towards people who are different to them? And ultimately, we wanted to create a world or a, an Australia where people felt valued irrespective of where they came from, their circumstances, who they were. So with Monash University, we undertook a study um, uh, and ultimately built the Inclusion Index. And what we found actually is there's a lot of prejudice and discrimination in our community. Um, it's quite, it's, I was quite shocked when I first read it. So one in four Australians has experienced major discrimination in the last two years. And we know that has a, you know, a really huge impact on people's wellbeing. But the good side of it also is that there's a lot of goodwill in our community as well. There's lots of people who want to help, they want to volunteer, they're prepared to step up and, you know, call out discrimination. They just need to know how. So part of this index is really showing people, you know, I guess the downside of where we are, but also the positivity that we need to really harness that goodwill that's in our community. So I think um, there's nothing quite like it. You know, we, we measure a lot um, within certain groups and experience. It's nothing that really holds us to account as a nation for that sort of culture and that experience. Yeah, and, and I imagine that the more you do this work, that the greater understanding and, and I suppose deeper picture you get of just how we're tracking across a range of measures of inclusion. This is the sixth data set I understand that you've collected and, and analysed. What have been some of the, the major trends over the last six years? Yeah, so look, there's, um, there's some things that remain pretty consistent. So the overarching index score doesn't bounce around a lot, but what does is the sub-industry. So, you know, we obviously um, have seen actually a slight decline in prejudice particularly towards some groups, so um, racial and religious minorities, Indigenous Australians and women, which is is fantastic. Um, we still see really quite elevated levels of discrimination against um, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, which is disturbing. You know, 50% of those um, those groups are saying they experience major discrimination and minor discrimination. Mm. Uh, we, ha- we actually saw that increased three years ago. We're not quite sure why. Um, So there was, I think around 2018, uh, we saw a significant spike in the experience of of discrimination against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, We know that Reconciliation Australia have also seen the same in their indexes as well. And we're not quite sure what's driving it. It could be that more people are reporting it or it could be that there's more of it. And so that's something that we really need to, to keep track on. Uh, we also saw um, elevated levels of discrimination against LGBTIQ plus people during the marriage equality debate. Um, and so thankfully that dropped down again um, the year after. And, and last year we also saw, saw a spike of, um, against uh, young people. Mm. And at first we were quite shocked because like, well, what's going on here? But when you think about the impact of COVID, they were the first to get you know, sacked from jobs because they have less sustainable employment. And also all the, the, I guess, the media hype around them, all young people out doing the wrong thing in the community while everyone's, you know, staying at home, that really had a, a quite a negative impact on them as well. So, so you do sort of see, um, I guess, 
you know, issues in Australia sort of play out in those sub-industries. Uh, but we, we are seeing now an increase also in the willingness to do something, which I think is, you know, a, a lot. there's a lot more advocacy in our community now than there was, say, three years ago with the Me Too movement and obviously Black Lives Matter. So I think people are, are kind of willing to step up and do a bit more now, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting with those trends, seeing some of the big <clears throat> political discussions coming out in them or some of the, the big um, situations like the pandemic over the past couple couple of years affecting people and you can see that now in the index it's fascinating I mean what, what is the story then around national identity that's come through this particular index because on one hand it doesn't surprise me that people might not they might like having an Australian passport or they might have a dual passport or whatever but they that people might be less sort of proud of a of being Australian um, on one level doesn't surprise me but on another you know what does it tell us about the connection to to the country yeah so look identification is really really important because you know we're sort of social animals so if we identify with a group you know whether that's your country whether it's your community whether it's your your football club, you actually feel um, like you belong there, you feel connected and connection is incredibly important for people's well-being. So if we're disconnected and isolated, you know, that has a negative impact on us. Um, so that sense of belonging to something is, is really, really important. We don't know why it's been declining um, and it's another one of those ones where we, we need to do further research. It could literally be that um, the last five years has been pretty bumpy you know, for Australians, we've had bush floods, uh, bush um, bushfires, we've had floods, we've had COVID. Uh, so it could be that you know people sort of want to go to ground a little bit, but it also could be that we're identifying more with on a global scale because if you look at there's one um, question in there about do you mm-hmm. identify with I guess the common people around the world, so that common humanity that's remained stable. So it could be that you know the way we um, the groups we're identifying with are, are much bigger now than just Australia. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting one. We just need to do a bit more work to find out why. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure if you can you can answer this, but what plays into that? Because I imagine if there's a particular framing of what it means to be Australian by, you know, government, particular politicians, maybe certain media outlets, it's sort of the dinky-die, sort of Aussie sort of stereotype, you can understand why a lot of people might not really align themselves with that. But is that a factor here, that it might be a particular idea of Australianness that isn't resonating maybe as much as it might have in the past? It, it, it could be. Um, it, we don't ask people, you know, what is the Australian identity? Mm. Uh, and, and I'm sure that, that would, that's a very hot, hot um, topic at the moment. Uh, what we do ask people is about how they feel about being Australian, yeah. how, they, um, how they use language around it, the we, uh, whether they, um, what, to what extent they love their country or care for their country. That's the sort of questions we ask. So we don't, we don't tell them what the Australian identity is. What we do, though, is also ask questions around the values. And, and if you look at the report, you'll see values around to what extent people have showed compassion, tolerance, respect, fairness. Some of those values are what you call synonymous with Australian culture. Uh, and really, over the last few years, we've seen a decline in people feeling like we're demonstrating those values. And that could simply be that, you know, people's capacity at a time that's so challenged has, has been limited but you know there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of how we're showing up around those values yeah it's um 
Uh, almost 10.30 here on Triple R. And we're speaking with Andrea Pierman, who's CEO of Inclusive Australia, and they've just released their sixth social inclusion index. It's um, come out today, I think, and there's been you know a bit of media interest in it, Andrea. And I, I mean, what is it that you're finding people are most interested in when trying to you know find out more about how uh, others feel when it comes to inclusivity in Australia? Yeah, I think people are generally pretty shocked by uh, how much discrimination people experience and 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 probably um more so around the everyday type of discrimination you know sort of those subtle forms of discrimination uh it's said like one in four australians but when you look at uh, some of those groups like indigenous australians 50 percent, and then if you look at that intersectionality so for example if you're an indigenous person that identifies as lgbtiq plus that goes up again even mm. further. So I think when you um, you hide behind the macro numbers, it doesn't tell the real story about what goes on for some groups of people. You know, they... There is a, they just face a lot of barriers. The other thing that's quite interesting in the report to point out is um, when people experience discrimination, we ask them why they think, and age, gender, and weight, and physical appearance come up top. So we are actually ageist. In Australia, we are um, we are uh, sizest as well, and that's quite surprising. So culture comes like down further. So there's some really interesting stats in there that are quite surprising. I think the other thing, again, I would say though, is um, this: there is a lot of uh, just incredible potential in the goodwill we have in Australia that we just need need to work out how to convert. So what we try and actively do is say, "Here's the problem, but there's a solution." and simple things that people can do to connect with others that are different to them. You know, just that gesture of saying hello, learning more about different cultures, um, advocating and supporting in very small ways actually makes a huge difference. Yeah, and, and I mean, obviously you're building up a really rich data set having done six of these. Have you seen any sort of um, broader projects come out of them or tangible outcomes that sort of leap off from some of the, the findings from these reports? Yeah, so look, we, we've done, um, we have done some things with the data. So, for example, coming back to the idea around connection, um, we, we do lots of storytelling in our work as well because uh, even – Connection, even if it's through a story, is a very, very powerful way of building um, awareness and empathy for different groups. Uh, so we do a lot of storytelling. We try and bring the voice of um, people with lived experience into our work as well. So that's definitely something that we've um, we've found works. Uh, we've also done um, a piece of work with the, with Monash University to look at workplace diversity and inclusion as well. So they did a review of all the different types of activities that organisations can do to improve workplace diversity and inclusion, and we've built a diagnostic tool around that. So there's a, a series of simple things organisations can do to be better. So, for example... Um, recruitment practices, making sure that you're aware of any biases in your recruitment practices, uh, making sure that you have really strong role models and, you know, obviously diversity within those role models as well. Even the way you communicate, you know, are you putting all white people in your marketing? Just really, really simple things. So we, we've got lots of tools now that we can help organisations improve with. And I mean, what, do you find that people or organisations don't know where to start. Like you've pointed out a couple of things there and uh, I can imagine if a workplace or someone becomes aware or there's a new CEO start or a new head of, of HR or something, is it clear to people where to start to, to address 
these kinds of issues. And I suppose one thing I note is uh, uh, in your survey, you look at the willingness to volunteer and the willingness to advocate for social inclusion, which are fascinating areas to study uh, that those small gestures that people are doing might not even realise that they're contributing to, to social inclusions or feel better, you know, feelings of well-being and others. The idea that those things matter um you know do you find that there's an awareness around those sorts of issues yeah probably not and probably not in in the positive and the negative sense because a lot of people wouldn't even realize that the way they speak to people at the supermarket is actually discriminatory Mm. you know and and so the subtle forms of discrimination around just being rude um treating someone as if they're stupid making all those sorts of assumptions are actually their forms of discrimination. So, uh, you know, I like to say in our work that we're all a work in progress. You know, we're as human beings, we, we come with a human condition of all these hard-baked biases and things like that. That's just a fact, but it's what you do with that and how um, you commit to trying to be better. And you're never going to get it right, but it's really important that we try and it's really important that we check ourselves and, and try to to be more respectful, to be more open, not talk over the top of each other, not assume. I think that's really important. That's something we all should be doing. Um, And obviously with organisations, there's lots of amazing resources out there. So, you know, we've got some um, resources around diversity inclusion. The Diversity Council of Australia have got a myriad of resources, as does government. So there's plenty of things people can do to reach out to those organisations and find out. Um, I think in a workplace context, we're moving, we've done a lot of great work. So we've got a lot of organisations have great policies in place. Flexible working has come, you know, a long way in the last two years. I think it's now, it's it's focusing on the I and the DNI, the inclusion. Like, how do you actually get the culture within organisations right so people feel safe enough to call things out, people feel um, that they're valued? So it's the more softer form, I think, that we really need to head into next. Yeah, such important work. Um, thanks so much for coming in. Congratulations on, on the report and look forward to seeing uh, what comes next. Thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Andrea Pierman, their CEO of Inclusive Australia, talking all about their brand new social inclusion index, which you can find via their website online. And um, by the sounds of it, there are a bunch of resources on your website as well. If, um, if anyone out there does um, want to seek further guidance in how to promote inclusivity in the workplace or, um, or elsewhere as well. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Digital Rights Watch has been looking for some time at ways we can tip the scales of digital influence in favour of the creatives and activists who in many ways make the internet what it is. And so it's an interesting time to have Exec Director of Digital Rights Watch, James Clark, on Triple R following Elon Musk buying Twitter. And Musk has described that platform as the digital town square. So what sort of square will it be? Um, James, it's great to have you here. Great to have you in studio at Triple R. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And um, Remind us, what were the reasons um, Elon Musk gave for wanting or actually buying Twitter? Well, the reasons that he gave were around wanting to protect free speech or advance free speech. And I think that he's got a fairly um, juvenile concept of what free speech means. Um, And I think for him, it's the ability to say outrageous things. Um, I also think that there's a fairly plausible uh, theory that he bought it because there's some kid who tracks his private jet around on Twitter and he really doesn't want that kid to do that anymore. So he's got $43 billion to just throw around. So why not? 
Wow. <laughs> and um, I mean, as, as a platform, how influential is it and, and, and how do you see, if at all, that might change under uh, Elon Musk? So it's a, Twitter's, it's not the most popular platform. I think most people, I've, most people listening probably aren't on Twitter, but it is uh, a very, very popular platform with politicians and with journalists um, as well as kind of academics. And so it, it ends up being a quite influential um, social media platform, even if it's not the most popular. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, and even not being the most popular platform, we've still got millions of people around the world who who do use it as a source of news, uh, as a source of, of political information, um, and also, you know, a space to have fun. And I think that um, having those kinds of that kind of social infrastructure in in the hands of a ideological billionaire is probably not not ideal, really. And yet, it, and yet, he he can buy it. So that's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? That the way that you know Twitter's constructed as a company means someone can actually get agreement around the board, acquire it, and then be the arbiter of that space. And I, I, I guess I'm interested then, you know, this, uh, you called it social infrastructure, uh, perhaps like power companies, whatever, we actually can put these essential services into the hands of, of private, private hands, I should I put it that way. You know, what, what does that mean for, for them, do you think? Well, it's really, it's obviously, they're still relatively new technologies. And so it's, it is hard to, to figure out exactly what this is going to mean. But I think we are, you know, as these technologies mature, these digital platforms really mature into um, fully fledged parts of our lives and really important parts of our lives. Obviously, the last couple of years, it's hard to imagine living through this pandemic without that kind of infrastructure. Um, and so, for the for that to live in private hands um, is concerning. Like it's it's all of all of our lives for the last couple of years were mediated through these platforms, and these are privately owned platforms. And I think that that does create risks that. I think we're only starting to come to terms with right now why we may not not want these really critical bits of infrastructure to be in private hands and and we might want to have other look into other ways of of governing these kinds of platforms. Yeah, and, and as you say, I mean, Elon Musk has, has said that he, you know, he wants to really protect freedom of speech on Twitter and so on. And you know, listeners would remember that, of course, Donald Trump was was kicked off Twitter when he was spreading a whole bunch of, of, of disinformation. But is there a, a free speech issue when it comes to to Twitter? I don't think that I've seen a, a huge issue with free speech on Twitter. I think that there's always, um, you know, content moderation on these platforms is always a a difficult thing to do and to do well. Um, there is a lack of transparency into how this is often done. And that's something that, um, you know, we, we definitely have a critique of. We'd like to see as a, as a rights-based organization, we do obviously err on the side of supporting freedom of speech. Um, but I think, you know, Elon Musk has a very, like I mentioned juvenile view of it where it's, um, you know, we look at like the other barriers that people may have to speaking freely and often, um, you know, there's economic reasons that people might not be able to speak freely. Um, Elon Musk has, um, you know, used his position of power and influence to silence critics before. Um, and so, you know, he's not much of a, if he, he claims to be a free speech absolutionist, but, you know, that doesn't extend to his employees or to people who criticize him. Um, so, yeah, but Twitter has also been a really big advocate of free speech, especially around defending um, anonymity online. And mm. that's something that we think is really, really important for people to, you know, who may have a job that prevents them from speaking freely. Or, you know, often we know that, that um, women, queer people face and people of color face a lot of uh, 
harassment online and far more than me as a straight white man would. Um, and that, that there's many reasons that people may want to remain anonymous so that they can engage in these kinds of debate. Twitter's been a really uh, fierce advocate of anonymity online. Um, Elon Musk has suggested that he may be undoing that, which is also concerning and again shows that he doesn't really his his understanding of free speech is pretty limited you know i mean thinking about free speech and and then the sort of a, a broader context i guess of the media in australia and we've had long and decades long debates around concentration of media ownership across different platforms usually looking at television radio newspapers when we look at these kinds of digital platforms how concentrated is the ownership of them. Well, obviously, very, like, a global scale, we're looking at, you know, there's a handful of, of platforms that operate at the scale of um, of Twitter. You're looking at Meta, formerly Facebook, um, and they own Instagram, WhatsApp, and, and Facebook, and, um, and you're obviously moving into VR as well. You've got Twitter, who... And then after that, you got like Microsoft with LinkedIn. You know, like it's, it's very... It's a very, very concentrated market, absolutely. At a global scale, it's, it's really quite... Um, scary when you th- when you do stop to think about it, and we know that last year when um, you know the, the flawed, but the attempts at um, regulating this with the news media bargaining code, trying to get these platforms to pay for the news that was being shared on their platforms, um, which we you know we had, a lot was written at the time, we weren't very supportive of it, but the, the the efforts to try and rein in the power of these platforms is something that we definitely are supportive of, um, and Facebook just shut off news they deplatformed all of australian news a lot of non-profits even some government agencies and so the you know this kind of power that they are willing to exercise is yeah it's definitely scary and, and something that our board chair last last week was saying lizzie o'shea who's our board chair was on abc um and she was mentioning that like you know jeff you someone buy like elon musk buys twitter for the same reason that jeff bezos buys the washington post or the same reason any billionaire buys a media platform it's because they want to have some influence over the narrative and some some control over um, how how public discourse is shaped, um, obviously in for their own ends and their own interests. Mm. Speaking with James Clark, executive director of Digital Rights Watch, all about Elon Musk buying Twitter, which um, which you no doubt saw splashed across the pages of um, various news outlets last week. And uh, I mean, w- what is there that can be done from sort of a user perspective in the face of, of ownership of these very large platforms by, you know, in many cases, single individuals who do wield in- incredible power? Because we've seen, as you mentioned, with the news media bargaining code, there's a limit to what governments can really do because there is a threat of just shutting the platform down in particular countries. And I noticed that, you know, there was a bit of a revolt, people looking for other platforms in the wake of, of Musk buying Twitter. But does that kind of thing actually work to put power back in the hands of, of users at all? I think there's going to have to be a, a mix of approaches to how we address this. And I do think that government is absolutely going to have to play a bigger role in this space than it has. And I think that that's uh, going to be a really interesting space and a difficult space to navigate and figure out what role government should be playing here. Um, like I mentioned, this is still a relatively new space. I think we are still only really coming to terms with the implications of this technology and, and how it should be regulated. Um, certainly uh, other other spaces and, and people experimenting with community-owned and decentralised and other other digital platforms. Mastodon's obviously been around now for a while, but it's a wonderful decentralized Twitter alternative. Um, but, you know, there are real benefits to the kind of centralization um, that Twitter have of in terms of usability, um, the network effect of like, you know, these are 
they're kind of natural monopolies. If you want to go to a place where everyone is, if it's, if it is genuinely the town square, um, there can really only be one town square if everyone's going to be there. Like that's the point. You can't go off and otherwise you're in your house. And so I think and we know what that's like. <laughs> we do, don't we? We've done far too much of that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that you know, like obviously we're going to experiment, and that's how we we create new spaces and, and new ideas. But I do think that in terms of like. You know, Mastodon struggle to take off because it is. It's difficult to figure out well, which which instance do I join? What do I do? How do I? You know, there's just all these things that make it difficult for the end user. Where Twitter, you go to Twitter.com, you sign up, and away you go. Um, and so I think that given given that there's a certain natural monopoly to this, um, we do need to look at how the government's going to regulate that, and also potentially how do we own it. Um, you know, can we can we look at public ownership here, or can we look at publicly owned alternatives to Twitter, mm. um, and also looking at um, you know different national spaces as well? Yeah, I was interested in this idea of of government owned infrastructure like this, if we call it that, and and run with your definition of it earlier, social infrastructure. Are you thinking? I imagine that depending on what government owned what, it would be quite alarming for people to be on a, a government owned platform. That said, the ABC has run and and the SBS, uh, they have charters. I mean, what what is the kind of vision there that government could go beyond setting up a regulatory environment for these kinds of platforms and actually being more hands on? Yeah. Well, one of the first things that we would want here is to see um, a. Uh, a review of the Privacy Act, which is in in progress at the moment, and we would like to see much stronger privacy protections and assurances. Um, we want that anyway. We think that's really important. Australians currently have uh, – we do not have very strong privacy protections, and I think if we're going to ha- look into having um, any kind of government – if the government's going to play any kind of role here, um, people are rightfully – like you say, they're, they're people would be alarmed. I would be alarmed if I was like logging on to if Facebook.com was owned by the Australian government and it just had like a main line into ASIO servers, which like it kind of has anyway. But, you know, if it had that, I would be, of course, I'd be worried about using it. And so I do think we need to look at privacy protections um, and also just how these tools would be built. But you mentioned the ABC and SBS. Um, There have been proposals floating around of like the ABC uh, could play a larger role here. Uh, the Centre for Responsible Technology, based out of the Australia Institute, have suggested that. Um, Digital Rights Watch, we haven't come to a form, firm view on that, whether that's a good idea or not. But it's, a, it's, it's certainly these are the ideas that we need to start talking about. I don't think that we're going to arrive at this without throwing out a few ideas that seem a bit silly. Yeah, and and, I mean, you are talking about a a whole range of ideas as part of your Rebalancing the Internet Economy series. We've spoken about this on on the Grapevine previously, but but what have you learnt through those sessions about, I suppose, the extent to which uh, creatives feel that the internet caters to them or or, or what could it do better to better enable, um, I suppose, independence and and creative, uh, I suppose, success and productivity online? Well, it is interesting that it does also come back to the a lot of the kind of things we're hearing through this is the the power that these platforms have, and also the way that these platforms have been designed to serve um, existing powerful economic infrastructure. So, one one example is like looking at music, which our our next event's going to be at the final of this series is going to be looking at music, uh, the music industry. But we know that. Um, you know, things like Spotify, the way that it's set up um, and the way that the licensing for Spotify was to work for the big the big five record labels mm. because 
they needed those record labels to make the streaming service work. And so it's set up in a way that works for the record labels, but not for, for artists. And so what we're seeing with uh, a lot of these digital platforms is that it's replicating the existing economic power structures, but more and faster. So it's, they're often just accelerating um, and, and heightening the divide in power um, and the kind of concentration in power at a global scale into like a handful of very large platforms. And so when we talk to, to creatives and artists and activists and sex workers and people who use the internet um, you know, to, to, to do their, their work, um, and these are the people who make these platforms exciting places to be it's you know it's it's our uh, creativity that we pour into these platforms that make them what they are um and yeah we do talk to them and it's not working for them and mm-hmm. we do need to look at alternatives um obviously some artists like there are um you know smaller experiments with with different models that are, that are going around but definitely to work at a, at a large scale we are looking at um yeah we're going to need some big changes that are going to shift the balance back towards towards creatives and especially local creatives yeah, hear, hear to that. And I, I guess, you know, thinking about, about you know, funding these things or, or people, you know, having more power, just circling right back around to Twitter here, yeah. uh, you know, Tesla, Elon Musk's um, business uh, has, you know, famously doesn't advertise. It, it kind of uses editorial uh, avenues to get word out, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, are we likely to see a, a different kind of economic basis for Twitter? Because, you know, there is advertising there. Like, do you know how that might change into the future? Do you, is I, it, does it matter? Um, I don't know. I guess that will be, we will wait to see what that looks like. Um, I think that at the end of the day, for me, the fact that this lives, that the power to change this platform lives basically in the hands of, of one person, especially now one person, it's going, to, it's going to be a private company and purely in Elon Musk's hands. Mm. Um, that does, you know, like for me, it's like, I don't know, maybe he'll do some good things. Maybe he'll do some bad things. He probably will do a mix of those things, but it's, you know, for a platform that is relied on by millions of people around the world, uh, they deserve to have a say and not just kind of sit here and just, I wonder hope, what he's going to do. Hope that Elon Musk doesn't make it bad. Yeah. We'll wait and see. Very interesting <laughs> position to be in. Thanks so much, James. It's really great to see you. And uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts. No worries. Thanks for having me. And uh, people can uh, look up uh, James's article as well uh, in Overland. And it's called The Town Square Doesn't Belong in Private Hands. Uh, a really good read. Uh, James Clark, Exec Director of Digital Rights Watch on Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. 